Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. And I want to start this uh, week's podcast with a little announcement. Now, this goes out to all students out there who are currently waiting to sit their A-level and GCSE exams. I have placed on the Explaining History website a download PDF with the 10 most frequently asked questions about Nazi Germany answered by a good friend of the site, Dr Alex J. K., who has, decided, who has been kind enough to um, lend us his expertise. He's an expert in Nazi Germany, uh, published several times, and has answered in a succinct way that's totally accessible to students and ideal for exam preparation, everything you need to know. So go to the site now and download that and then come back to this podcast. Okay, great, you're back. So this week I'm going to talk a little bit about Theodor Herzl, the founder of modern Zionism and really the man from whom the ideas that create the state of Israel spring. And there is a paradox about Herzl. Herzl grew up really as a secular Jew in Hungary. As a journalist and a writer, Herzl existed on both sides of the debate amongst European Jewry about what to do regarding their future. He initially was quite secular in his outlook and so assimilated that he didn't even have a bar mitzvah as a teenager. He was far from being uh, an exponent of orthodox um, Judaism and was part of a generation of European Jews who wished to really see themselves as Europeans first and foremost, or, more to the point, as citizens of the nations from where they came, be they German, French, Dutch, Austrian, or whatever. If, as a young man, Herzl was a nationalist at all, he was a German nationalist. He moved to Vienna and gravitated more and more closely with German nationalist circles and saw himself as a German, until, of course, he realised that running through German nationalism was a latent, and well, not so latent in point of fact, anti-Semitism. In 1878, as a law student in Vienna, he joined the Germanic Birchenschaft Nationalist Society, but, owing to their anti-Semitic views, later resigned. 
Throughout the 19th century, and particularly in Poland and Western Russia, a debate had been continuing throughout Jewish communities about what their future would be. Was there a future for Jews in Europe at all? And the debate was divided probably three ways. Firstly, there were the Jews who believed that Poland, Belarusia, uh, and the other um, areas within Tsarist Russia that Jews had been allowed to stay in the, the Pale, as it was called, uh, were by no means ideal, but there was a sufficient amount of stability for Jews to somehow thrive and, and live there. The Tsarist state under Alexander III was certainly no friend to the Jews, and anti-Semitism was on the rise throughout the Russian Empire throughout the 1880s and 1890s. But there was a sense that whilst the Jews had trouble, and the Jews had always had trouble throughout their history, it was a manageable amount, and the fear was that if they went somewhere else or settled somewhere else, the conditions there would be unknown and all sorts of bad things might occur. There was the point of view of those who argued in favour of migration, that uh, America particularly was the place to go. And then there was the view of the more orthodox Zionists, who believed that if you were going to go anywhere, Palestine is the place. Palestine obviously being the original home of the Jews in the time prior to the Roman Empire. The experience of existing as a diaspora, a, a people scattered across the world, particularly scattered in communities across Europe, was quite a new, unique one in 19th century Europe, because most of the peoples of 19th century Europe were undergoing a completely different process. If you look at any nation um, in that period of time, France, Germany, Italy, Britain, the force and the trend towards greater nationhood and nation-statehood was one that was felt in, in every different particular tribe, if you will, of Europe. And so the experience of being the outsider in this time of nationalism, of nation-building, was quite acute for many of the Jews. There were a number of high uh, points of anti-Semitism throughout the century. And Jews who were geographically unlinked to these uh, epicentres of anti-Semitism were still profoundly affected by them, and their communities scattered across Europe were onlookers at specific localised attacks upon the Jews. The first is in 1840, and were, happened in Damascus in Syria, in the heart of the Ottoman Empire, and was known as the Damascus Blood Libel Trial, where Jews were accused of murdering a Christian monk. In the Ottoman Empire, Jews and Christians both had limited rights, not no rights at all, but limited rights and rather heavier taxation than Muslims, and they were treated to, to a greater extent uh, prior to the 1840s with tolerance. 
the eight notable Jews um, from the community who were accused of the crime falsely were imprisoned, tortured and executed. And it became a cause celebre across Europe with interventions from the great and the good from uh, Britain, France and the Germanic states. Romania in the 1860s and 1870s became the site of anti-Jewish persecution. And then the focus shifts to Russia during the reign, as I said previously, of Alexander II and Alexander III. And part of the reason for the persecution of Jews in Russia during this period of time is, to some extent, due to state-directed violence. But a larger um, body of evidence now suggests that this was a kind of a more grassroots violence. Ordinary Russians dislocated by the waves of industrialization, the emancipation of the peasantry and other big social changes were liable to vent their frustrations, their anger and their uh, sense of grievance on Jews. Under Nicholas II, the uh, state takes more of a role in anti-Semitic persecution. But the final great showpiece anti-Semitic action of the 19th century happens in France, and it is, of course, the Dreyfus Affair. And it was this Dreyfus Affair that caused Herzl to embrace Zionism and embrace Palestine as the solution to the question of whether the Jews should leave Europe or not. And he decided emphatically, yes, they should, and yes, they needed to. Herzl had stepped over the uh, dividing line between integration and uh, emigration. The Dreyfus Affair rocked France, it divided the country, and it shone a light, as far as Herzl was concerned, on the real nature of Europe and how Europe viewed the Jews. Dreyfus was a French army officer who was accused of spying for Germany, falsely. He was disgraced, put on trial, convicted and sent to a life of hard labour in France's Devil's Island colony. For those of you who don't do geography, Devil's Island is off the coast of French Guiana and it was the most notorious prison of the French Third Republic. Anyone who wants to watch the film Papillon with Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman, can get a really good idea of how harsh and unpleasant a place it was. Um, the prisoners there tended to die of hunger, malaria, overwork. It was France's gulag, in essence. Following the framing of Dreyfus, two years later, an army officer by the name of Esterhazy was, was accused of being the real culprit. Esterhazy came to trial and was acquitted on day two of his trial, and in order to cover his tracks, and in order to cover the tracks of the various anti-Semites in the, Russia, uh, the French Ministry of War, new charges were put to Dreyfus, and his sentence was increased. The radical French journalist Émile Zola interjected at this point and wrote his epic polemic J'accuse, which accused all levels of the French Third Republic of lying and corruption and intolerance and anti-Semitism. 
and Dreyfus in 1899 was returned to France for a retrial. During this retrial, Dreyfus is convicted of yet more charges and is given a further 10-year sentence. However, the state chooses to pardon him, an obvious recognition that something terribly unjust had happened. But he was pardoned of, instead of being acquitted, he's pardoned. He's pardoned of the crimes that he has, in theory, actually done, though he's innocent, if you see what I mean. So the public perception of Dreyfus that lingered on was one of his uh, dishonesty and corruption. And it is fuelled in no smaller part by a, a great groundswell of anti-Semitism in France that has bubbled up during the time of the case. When Herzl saw the uh, degree of public hatred towards the Jews in the streets of Paris, he began to recognise in his own mind that there was a, a, a futility in remaining in Europe. Some historians have argued in recent years that Herzl himself wasn't quite as influenced by the Dreyfus affair as he would like to have suggested, and some accounts of Herzl suggest that he actually believed Dreyfus initially might have been guilty. However, the thing that does clearly influence Herzl is the outpouring of anti-Semitic demagoguery from various proto-fascist speakers and intellectuals and writers that is uh, happening at the same time. And those are the people that are perhaps more influenced by the Dreyfus affair and, and subsequently uh, cause Herzl to view Europe as being a kind of dangerous and dubious place for the Jewish people. One of the destinations that Herzl had in mind when he wrote his book in 1895, Der Judenstadt, or The Jewish State, other than Palestine, was Argentina. However, Palestine seemed to be the favourite choice. In the book, Herzl wrote, The Jewish question persists wherever Jews live in appreciable numbers. Wherever it does not exist, it is brought in together with Jewish immigrants. We're naturally drawn into those places where we are not persecuted and our appearance there gives rise to persecution. This is the case and will inevitably be so everywhere, even in highly civilised countries, see for instance France, so long as the Jewish question is not solved on the political level. The unfortunate Jews are now carrying the seeds of anti-Semitism into England and they have already introduced it into America. So that gives us quite a flavour of Herzl's thinkings about the inevitability of anti-Semitism wherever the Jews went. And the trick, obviously, was to find a part of the world that the Jews could call their own exclusively. Not to be a minority community in someone else's country, but to have a Jewish state. The ideas that Herzl puts forward are not unattractive to non-Jews. In America and in Britain, there is some sympathy amongst the intellectual classes, amongst religious leaders and uh, amongst certain churches that the Jews should indeed have a homeland. One of the attractions of this idea in Britain is that the Jews are clearly treated badly in other European countries, other European countries, and the subtext being that are less civilised than good old Britain 
who would never do such awful things. And the focus of this initially in the 1880s has always been on Russia. But gradually, as the century draws to a close and antipathy towards Germany grows, uh, a sense that the, 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 the Germans are not particularly nice to the Jews either grows and England can feel justifiably uh, self-satisfied. Not really that there are not uh, anti-Semitic attitudes in Britain in the late 19th century. There certainly are, just there are very small Jewish populations for those to be vented upon. Towards the end of his life, Herzl looked to the British Empire to be the patron of Jewish fortunes. And there was a hope that in British East Africa, a Jewish homeland could be established and one that would have the patronage of the British Empire as a kind of parent body to look after the interests of European Jews in Africa. Herzl approached various people, including the Pope at the time, to get blessing for this initiative. Um, unfortunately, he dies before uh, any real action on this can take place. And the scheme uh, was loosely called the Uganda Plan, never comes to light. Herzl died in 1904 and wouldn't live to see, 13 years later, the Balfour Declaration, which is something I'll uh, address in a uh, forthcoming podcast. But it was the Balfour Declaration, signed by Arthur Balfour, that allowed for a Jewish homeland, not a state, but a homeland, to exist in Palestine from 1918 onwards, following the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the defeat of the Ottomans in Palestine at the hands of General Allenby of the British. And, of course, the mandate that Britain had over Palestine that lasted from 1918 to 1948 would be the seeds of the birth of the nation of Israel. So I think the interesting and important thing that we can gain from this little story of Theodore Herzl is about how ideas translate into the into real world changes in 20th century history the 19th century um is this particularly 19th century europe is this cauldron of ideas of liberal nationalist and socialist ideas that go on to shape the entire world in the coming century and Theodore Herzl's story is a key example of that. And as we look later on in future podcasts and pursue the history of the Middle East, we'll realise precisely how world-shaping Herzl's concepts were. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I hope it's been useful to you. Uh, if you want to get in touch, the web address is www.explaininghistory.com. Um, do remember that we've got some great downloads there, some great free downloads, also some great ebooks that are uh, for Kindle and all the other devices. So give us a look and sign up to the newsletter and drop me a line. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll catch you on the next podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.